What's going on, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 38 of the RizzoCast podcast. I'm Steven Rizzotto, and we are joined today by a very, very special guest. He is the president of the Negro League Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. It is Mr. Bob Kendrick. Mr. Kendrick, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Stephen. How are you? I'm doing extremely well, of course. Um, I, I joked before that we're meeting, but it's it's not face-to-face, of course, since we are still living uh, in COVID times. Uh, we So we had some sad news uh, last week with the passing of Mr. Hank Aaron, one of the greatest baseball players of all time. Um, in your opinion, in the museum's opinion, what is Mr. Hank Aaron, Hammer and Hank, as they used to call him, what is his lasting legacy in baseball? Not just baseball, but in the world. Yeah, no, and my heart is still a little heavy. You know, as we are recording this today, they were having the memorial service in Atlanta, and I was asked to submit a video for the memorial service looking back at his legacy, which began as a member of the Negro Leagues. 1952 with the Indianapolis Clowns. And that's where it all began, as a skinny cross-handed hitting shortstop. So Henry Aaron Stephen was a right-hand hitter who hit with his left hand on top. That is unorthodox. The fear is that you would break your wrist hitting in that manner. And Henry Aaron was knocking the cover off the baseball in a highly unorthodox fashion. When he gets to the Clowns, they put the right hand on top and the rest, as we say, is history. He was shortly after discovered by the Boston Braves, who would become the Milwaukee Braves, who, of course, would become the Atlanta Braves. And Henry Aaron, as you know, will go down in this sport as one of his all-time greatest players. Matter of fact, in a game of numbers, and our game is a game of numbers, no one's numbers are better than Henry Aaron. You know, his total base record will never be broken. His RBI record likely will never be broken. You take away all 755 home runs, he still has over 3,000 hits. You know, so he was more than just a home run hitter. And that's what everybody kind of remembers him as. He's one of the greatest all-around baseball players this sport has ever seen. But you can never reduce Henry Aaron's illustrious career to just baseball. Baseball was a premise and a platform that allowed him to become an iconic civil rights leader, a humanitarian, a philanthropist, an astute businessman who was driven by a desire to make sure that those who had been marginalized in this country continue the quest to fight for equality and justice. And, and so his legacy as a human being supersedes his baseball career, and he's one of the greatest baseball players to ever put on a baseball uniform. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I think I, I looked up the total bases and I think it averaged out to about 116 miles. I mean, you've got to be, that, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, I, that's I a lot of last, I remember last check, somebody told me that he was 12 miles ahead of Stan Musial, who was the closest one to him. So I don't think that one is going to be broken. That's un- that's unbelievable. I mean, you got to hop in a car and drive down the freeway if you want to get <laughs> Henry Aaron. That's pretty incredible. Um, so he's a guy that that came through the Negro Leagues, as you mentioned. Was Hank Aaron a guy that would come around the museum a lot? Was he always there? Yeah, no, was- we, we were we were all very fortunate to spend a considerable amount of time with Mr. Aaron. With Mr. Aaron, and you have to understand that he was, or and I can't even hardly say it in the past tense. He is my favorite baseball player. 
and he is still my childhood idol. You know, as a kid growing up in Crawfordville, Georgia, just east of Atlanta, 80 miles east of Atlanta, 50 miles west of Augusta. And so on the sandlot, I wanted to be Henry Aaron. And, and all the other kids knew I was going to be Henry Aaron. And I'm sure they were saying it themselves, dang, Bob always got to be Henry Aaron. Yep, Bob's Henry Aaron. And I get to meet him here in 1999, where I had the opportunity to take him and his wife, Billy, on a tour of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. It was one of the greatest days ever for me. And, my, and still to this day, my favorite person that I've ever toured through the Negro Leagues Museum. And we get to a photograph of him. And he's standing there at the train station in Mobile. Stephen, he must weigh 150 pounds, you know. And as I shared in his memorial service video, at his foot was a duffel bag. And he told me, he says, Bob, I may have had two changes of clothes in that bag, a dollar 50 cents in my pocket, and a ham sandwich that my mama had made me going to go chase that dream. And, and it worked out pretty well for the hammer. And after we finished the tour, we had an event right across the street from the museum, a small theater called the Gym Theater. This is about 500 people. We had a round table discussion with him and it was absolutely riveting. And when that was done, we go up to the mezzanine level of the Gym Theater and I get to sit down and eat a platter of Gates barbecue ribs with my childhood idol. Man, it don't get any better than that, you know? And so, yeah, and, and he's, the only, he's the only person that we've ever hosted here at the museum that I've been starstruck by. And every time I was in his presence, I was basically reduced to that almost 12-year-old kid who circled the bases in his mother's living room when Henry Aaron hit record home run 715 in Atlanta's Fulton County Stadium. I was circling the bases right along with him in my mother's living room. And every time I was around him, I was that, that kid again, you know? And so, yeah, you know, his presence will be sorely missed. Tremendous loss for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, a tremendous loss for the Negro Leagues family, and really a tremendous loss for the baseball world and the world in general to lose an icon like Henry, Henry Aaron. Yeah, and I, I heard someone say that this is not just something that goes on the sports page. This is something that goes on the front of the newspaper, and, and I 100% I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, so let's hop into to, you know, 2020, of course. It was a year that was really hard you know, for you guys down there in Kansas City and everybody else that has some kind of business all over the world. Oh, yeah. So when, when COVID-19 hit, what was the process like dealing with you know, the pandemic from a business standpoint? You know, we had to make it up as we went along. You know, there was no experience to draw from. You know, even in the best of crisis management situations, you don't get a pandemic. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, there's nothing to draw from. And we shut down March 14th. And we were literally closed for three months, from March 14th until June 16th. But prior to that, you know, we had, we had launched our 100th anniversary celebration last year, marked the 100th anniversary of the birth of the Negro Leagues. We get off to a flying start. You know, the commissioner of Major League Baseball is here and other dignitaries gathered with us to commemorate the anniversary of the 100th anniversary in the very building 
that the leagues were formed here in Kansas City in 1920, the Purcell YMCA. We go back in. And at that point in time, Major League Baseball and the Players Association announced a joint $1 million contribution to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Stephen, we roll out all of our plans for a year-long uh, 100th anniversary celebration. And so we're off to a flying start. Man, less than 30 days later, everything came to a screeching halt, just like that. And so it was devastating. It knocked the wind out of your sails because we had so much riding on this 100th anniversary celebration. So not only was it going to be this year-long celebration, but it was also going to be the springboard for a substantial fundraising campaign for the museum. You know, this is going to be, this was we thought would be the platform that would put us in a much better position to go out and raise sustaining revenue for this museum. And so you saw all of that seemingly falling by the wayside. But what I'm so proud of is that we were able to salvage much of the celebration. We couldn't do the group gathering things that we had hoped to do. But, you know, the story of the Negro Leagues is built on resiliency. And, and I just felt like we needed to embody that same resilient spirit. You know, you cannot wallow in self-pity and be a steward of this story. Because those athletes, those incredibly courageous athletes who call the Negro Leagues home, they didn't cry about the social injustice. They went out and did something about it. And so I had to embrace that same spirit. Now, I'll tell you, to be honest, I was doing a little wallowing when this first went down. I ain't going <laughs> to lie. You know, I didn't have that whole resilient mindset. But at some point, you knew you had to pick yourself up by the bootstrap. And for me, I use a bad baseball analogy as to identify coronavirus. Coronavirus was essentially that big nasty right-hander who threw one high and tight, knocked you down, and now you got to get back up, get in the batter's box, dust yourself off, and you got to figure out how you're going to hit this sucker. And that's exactly what we tried to do, figure out how we were going to hit it. And we were able to salvage the, you know, the celebration and generate a level of engagement in and around the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and Negro Leagues history in general that we've never seen for this organization. So efforts like our tip your cap to the Negro Leagues, which went viral, you know, the National Day of Recognition with Major League Baseball, albeit there were no fans in the stands, created an unprecedented level of engagement as we moved through the year the announcement of bipartisan legislation to create a U.S. Mint commemorative coin in salute of the 100th anniversary of the Negro Leagues. And then at the end of the year, Major League Baseball's historic announcement that it was long last recognizing the Negro Leagues for exactly what they were, a major league. And, and so all of these things has, has given us great momentum now as we move into 2021. Yeah, for sure. And I love that analogy, by the way. That's a great analogy with the nasty, nasty right-hander. And I'm sure um, the country and, and your museum is going to hit the ball 450 feet to dead center, uh, for sure. So when you guys were closed, were you still going to work every day? Were you working from home? So my, 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 my team was off. And I'm so proud that we never laid anyone off. Mm -hmm. We never had any furloughs. You know, we were determined that we were going to do as much as we could to not interrupt our team's livelihood. 
And so we had a few staffers who would come in every now and then just handle mail orders. But for the better part, they were off. I would come in, you know, three, four hours, two, three times a week, just into my office. Just number one, I needed to get out the house anyway. <laughs> and, and so to come into my office and do a, do a little bit of work, but I would never go into the exhibition. And I could never remember a time that I've been involved with this organization that I, I've gone that long without stepping foot in the exhibition. I couldn't do it. You know, it just seemed almost lifeless. You know, uh, it was dark and dreary for me. And, and when we finally reopened on June 16th, it was just great to have life back in this museum, a place that gives life to this amazing story of triumph over adversity. And, and so, yeah, my, my, my spirits were a little down initially. And, and, you know, but slowly but surely, you start to kind of rally around the task at hand. And when we did reopen, albeit was in, you know, with operating within the 25% uh, protocol that the city of Kansas City had placed on businesses, like I said, it was just great to have life back in the museum, man. And the first person that visited the museum, it's almost ironic, was from Brooklyn, New York, a young lady from Brooklyn, New York, of all places. And she just, you know, she and her husband were driving through town. He had a little business in Kansas City. So she had heard that we were reopening that day, and she was our first visitor. And I'm not lying, Stephen, when she walked in to buy a ticket, it felt like a publisher's clearinghouse moment. You know, I wanted the balloons and the, the confetti and everything to be released. Everything except the fact that we didn't have a check for it. There was no check. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it was so exciting to, because we had life back in this place again. And, you know, since that time, though, we've been hanging tough. I'm so proud of, of our team and the effort that went in under some very challenging circumstances. Yeah, for and, sure. I yeah, very Go ahead. And, and we've been able to keep the museum uh, solvent, keep the museum operating at, at a high level. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I know you guys, I know, as you mentioned, you guys opened operations in, in June. Uh, and that was the midst of, of the social unrest that was happening. Was there like a sense of, you know, that the country needed something like the museum open? You know, they did. They oh, needed that reminder. They needed that reflection of Black history. There is no question. There is no question. That's one of the reasons why I think our tip your cap to the Negro Leagues went viral. I think our country needed something like that that they could rally around. And here was the winning spirit of the Negro Leagues bringing us together for common cause. And this cause was to celebrate what the Negro Leagues meant both on and off the field. And, and as you know, in our world of baseball. There's nothing more honorable that a ball player can do than just a simple tip of the cap. Absolutely. It is the ultimate show of respect. And so when we launched this campaign, June 29th, we launched this campaign with four U.S. presidents tipping their cap. President Obama, Carter, Bush, and Clinton. Uh, dignitaries like General Colin Powell transcending athletes such as Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and Billie Jean King. Uh, Bob Costas was involved. Henry Aaron, the late great Henry Aaron was involved. And, and this thing just started to snowball and it just got, it just kept moving and growing and growing and people got really excited and engaged. And then you saw little league teams, kids, you know, recognizing and saying, we see you, you know, and we value what you did so that we can play this game. It was just a beautiful thing to see. 
and so as the year went on and you know we just kind of continued to gain momentum around this thing but you're right so many people turned to the negro leagues baseball museum for thought leadership because i think Stephen, they did understand and recognize the fact that the negro leagues baseball museum is a social justice museum it's a civil rights museum it's just seen through the lens of baseball 100 percent. and i didn't i'll do a delayed one right here there we go there's a <laughs> delayed tip of the cap um but i did see that trend and i do think that that was awesome and it did bring a lot of people together so barstool let's talk about this the barstool fund which was put on by barstool sports uh i guess their network yeah has been financially helping small businesses all over the country and the negro league museum is getting a bit of a boost so explain how this came about with barstool Totally by happenstance. Yeah, I, I didn't even know of the fund. And, and, and I tip my cap to Dave Portnoy and all who have been involved and supported because they raised at last count, last time I saw over $22 million, you know, from the private sector to support small businesses who had been, you know, hurt by the pandemic. And a supporter, a friend of the museum, found out about this. And he submitted our name to see if they would accept us as a possible applicant. They responded back, yes. At that point in time, I'm, I, you know, shamelessly, I'm in Orlando. I had gone off on a golf getaway. And so I get a uh, distress call saying, hey, we need to get some information in right away to this Barstool Fund. They are considering us for a grant. So we maneuvered and got the information. And, and then at that point in time, they responded back and said, okay, you guys look like you are a fit for what we want to do. We need a video. We need a video of you telling us why we should support the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Now, again, I'm in Orlando trying to hit the golf ball. Let me and, finish this hole. So <laughs> yeah, I'm not even at the museum. And so they said, and, and the caveat was, not only do we need this video, we need this video right now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's and great. so I sat down in the place that we were staying and recorded the video, you know, just impromptu video. I don't have the museum as a backdrop or anything, you know, just some painting that was in the living room of this place <laughs> that we were staying. I record the video, get it uploaded. And so the young man who had submitted the application on our behalf, he got it sent over to Barstool. And he had, he had said, now, if they are going to fund, you will get a FaceTime from, from Dave. And so I'm like, well, okay, well, we got it in. We'll see what happens. That was all on a, on a Friday. Saturday evening, after we'd finished the round of golf, we had gone to get takeout. We got, you got some pizza and was headed back in. So I missed the first FaceTime call. I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> but then already told me, said, if you missed the call, don't call back. He'll call you back. And sure enough, 15, 20 minutes later, I get another FaceTime call that's from Dave Portnoy congratulating me and the museum that we had been selected to receive this grant, which is providing some a big boost in, in, in terms of our operational needs. And, and so it was, uh, in a, you know, it was an incredible. We had a great conversation mm -hmm. that kind of got posted on social media. People went nuts, you know, over the conversation and. And, and so it was pretty cool, but it all happened by happenstance. You know, I, I don't know if I've ever gotten a grant in, in this kind of manner ever, but it was still pretty cool. 
Yeah, and I, I could just imagine the driver laying there on the golf course, <laughs> the, the bag just left behind, you ran out. <laughs> Mr. Kendrick's driver has never been seen again. <laughs> That's pretty incredible. Yeah, hopefully hopefully all the other businesses like had, you know, their their uh they didn't, you know, delete whoever wasn't on their caller ID. That exactly. would have been bad. Exactly. Exactly. So, so that's pretty incredible. Were you familiar with Barstool beforehand? I mean, I knew the name and I knew, you know, I knew the brand, but I didn't know a whole lot about them. You know, and so that made it even more fascinating for me as well. And, you know, I have to tip my my cap to a young man named Chad Peter who submitted the museum and then saw a lot of this kind of move through the pipeline to the point where we could get with me recording this video. And I guess whatever I said in the video must have resonated uh, because they certainly responded. Yeah, for sure. So, Chad, shout out to you. Uh, Absolutely. Big shout out. Yo, Mr. Kendrick here, new, uh, some more golf clubs here. <laughs> um, so everyone looks at, you know, Cooperstown and the Negro Leagues Museum often gets overlooked, you know, from Cooperstown. But everyone that has visited Kansas City says that the Negro League Museum is a must-see destination. How has this incredible museum, you know, stayed relevant and interesting, you know, 65 to 70 years after the Negro Leagues, you know, played their last game, played their last season. Yeah. It's so interesting to me. Well, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the Negro Leagues had not been played in over 60 years. And I think the challenge for any museum, and particularly history museums and, and cultural institutions like ours, is how do you make it relevant? You know, and but the life lessons that stem from the Negro Leagues are very pertinent. That is why the museum has been such a wonderful tool of trying to bridge the racial gap in this country. But I think the other thing that has aided us in this, this journey, this almost improbable journey for a little museum that began in a one room office about a fraction of the size of this office that I'm sitting in when no one gave it any chance of succeeding and here we, now, here we are now in our 31st year of operations and recognized as America's National Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. You believe, and you have to believe, that this was a story that needed to be preserved. It needed to be celebrated. We needed to educate the public about a piece of baseball and Americana that most had no idea even existed no less to the magnitude in which it existed. And, and, and so I think the thing that separates us from our great friend, the Hall of Fame, National Baseball Hall of Fame, wonderful place. And particularly if you like stuff, they got more stuff than they will probably ever be able to display. But this museum is about a story. It is about a very powerful, compelling, inspirational story that had escaped the pages of American history books. So for the moral majority of the people who come to see us, this is an awakening. And the first thing that you usually hear from them is, I didn't know that. Well, of course you didn't know. And as my, my late mother would say, you don't know what you don't know, you know, because <laughs> in this case, you had no way to know it. It's not there in history books. And, and so people are amazed, Stephen, by what they learn. But you leave a little bit dismayed 
by the fact that I just now had an opportunity to learn it. Why didn't I know this when I was in school? And the answer is simple. American historians did us all a tremendous disservice. They kept this wonderful piece of baseball and Americana away from us. So countless generations of us have gone through our own formal educations without knowing one of the most significant chapters, not in baseball history, but in American history. And that's that powerful and compelling story of the Negro Leagues. And, and so we feel like we have a very special place, you know, as it fits in between sports and history. And, and so a lot of people have responded to this and more and more people are responding. Because when you think about the story of the Negro Leagues, it is everything that America prides herself in. It's about pride and passion and perseverance, determination and courage. And it's all based on one simple principle. You won't, you won't let me play with you in the major leagues. Okay, then I'll just create my own league. And then my league will rise to rival and in many cities across this country surpass the league that wouldn't let me play. There's something very American about the spirit. So while America was trying to prevent them from sharing in the joys of her so-called national pastime, it was the American spirit that allowed them to persevere and prevail. And that is very triumphant in nature. Yeah, so people think sometimes that they're gonna experience a sad, somber story. You got the wrong place. Now, there's nothing sad about this story. This is a celebration. And it is the celebration of the power of the human spirit to persevere and prevail. That that's really great stuff. So are new facts still being under, you know, uncovered about the Negro Leagues? Will someone come up to you and say, "Hey, did you know that so and so did this?" Or you know, "Hey, you know, this is actually how it happened." Will people come up to you and and you know? Yeah, no, it's still stuff being uncovered. You know, uh, over a forty-year time span with so much loss seemingly to time. And, and so, and particularly from a statistical standpoint, yeah. you know, there are new revelations coming out all the time and the historians are doing such a wonderful job of delving deeper into this and uncombing and unearthing stuff. And so it, I find it fascinating, man. I've been involved with this museum since 1993. So 27 years of affiliation, going into my 28th year of affiliation, I started as a volunteer. It was fascinating to me then it is still just as fascinating to me to this very day, you know, and I, you know, a pot, you can't possibly see being a volunteer and then ultimately trying to run the organization. But, you know, it, it was a strange twist of fate on how all of that kind of ultimately led down this career path for me. Yeah. So when young people walk in, what are they most drawn to? Like, what do you, what do you get the most comments on in the museum with, with the oh, younger generation? It's the Field of Legends. Mm -hmm. The Field of Legends is a mock baseball diamond that houses 10 of 12 life-size bronze sculptures of Negro League great, and they're cast in position as if they were going to play a game. And, and they are amazing. And, and the young people can't wait to get out on the field. We have, we have our challenges trying to keep them from running the bases you know, because those statues don't move. Those statues weigh about 500 pounds a piece. We've seen kids take them home and, and, and the statues are undefeated. <laughs> <laughs> statues don't get bruises. 
<laughs> but they're fascinated. They're beautiful pieces. You know, and the kids are always enamored with the old equipment. You see these old mitts. You see these old ball gloves. Man, they're the size of a work glove. You know, matter of fact, you see these probably see some work gloves that are larger than some of these gloves that they were using back in the day. They, they're fascinated by the old gear, of course, the catcher's gear and the little shin protector that didn't really protect a whole lot. But, you know, so, yeah, there are a lot of things that they, I think is eye-opening for a lot of the young people. It's a very nostalgic feel to how we've done the museum. So it's not high-tech like you see a lot of places because we really wanted folks to fully immerse themselves. And we wanted to feel like you've time traveled back in time, you know, and so you see the sign, the signs of the times. There's the hotels and the, you know, the barber shop and these kinds of things that were such a prevalent part of black life in this country. Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. So of course, as we, as you mentioned before, Major League Baseball has now moved forward with classifying the Negro Leagues as a major baseball uh, league. So fans, fans will now get the chance to know, and because I, I know you and I know that Josh Gibson was one of the best power hitters ever, regardless of if he ever faced major league pitching. We know that Satchel Paige was probably a top five pitcher ever, maybe the best. They will now know. So, you know, casual baseball fans will now know the impact of a guy like, you know, Josh Gibson, Satchel Paige, Buck O'Neill. How much of an awesome moment was it when you first heard this news? Yeah, you know, and fortunately for me, I was kind of privy to this before it was actually publicly announced. So I had a little time to wrap my arms around it. And, and so when it was first broached to me, I'll be honest, I, I had a little bit of a defiant stance, you know, because I was looking at it from the inside out as opposed from the outside in. Because initially I'm saying to myself, well, I don't need you to validate me. You know, that's how, that was my mindset, and it was a wrong mindset, but that was my initial thought. I don't need Major League Baseball to validate me. See, I knew those players, and, and I knew how they knew how good they were, and they knew how good their league was. So they never sought validation from anyone. As a matter of fact, the Major Leaguers knew how good they were. But as I said, I had to step outside of myself. You know, I realized that, okay, Bob, you know, you, you're looking at this wrong. Think about what this looks like for the casual observer, the future baseball fan. And, and then it just kind of hit me how important this really was, that this was an amazing moment in history. And it wasn't about validating the talent. It was, however, about recognition, recognition of just how important these leagues were both on and off the field. In his own way, it was about atonement and reckoning. And that's really important. And so when I started to think about it from that purview, it changed my, my thinking entirely. And I'm glad to know that at my old age, I'm flexible enough to see the 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 way the eels of my ways sometimes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 I love that it's getting the recognition. Um, how will the stats merge? Do, you, do we know any of this yet? Will Gibson have the 800 homers? Will Willie Mays have like the... He probably won't have the 800 homers because they won't count all the home runs against all levels of competition. And so when you look at what the cutoff is 1948, 
So from 1920 to 1948, I thought it could have gone into the early 50s because you still had a number of great stars in the Negro Leagues in the 50s. Now, by 55, the league was essentially minor league at best because you had siphoned so much of the talent out of the Negro Leagues, and even more so, the fan base had left the Negro Leagues to go see how their great black stars were going to fail. And, and so it's a little bit of give and take when you start looking at numbers. And, and for me, numbers are more contextual. They will never tell the real story of the Negro League, but they will give some context. And for those who love numbers, and again, our game is a game of numbers, and for those who need numbers, then I'm glad that we have the quantitative data that'll be necessary that allows a day like this to happen where Major League Baseball will integrate these numbers in, into their uh, historical statistical annals. And, and so, you know, in league games, you might have Gibson. I don't know what the numbers actually are, but it, let's just say it's 250 home runs. Somebody's going to say, well, that don't look like Babe Ruth. But then when you examine the numbers, that's whatever it is, 200 and plus home runs in a short window of games. So the, the home run per at bat, or if you were to look at it over 162 games, those numbers now look very much Ruthian. Mm -hmm. But what you'll also see is that in 1943, Josh Gibson hit 441. And that now would likely become the single season all-time greatest batting record. You know, and so it's a little bit of give and take. You know, great players in the Negro Leagues like Amante Irvin, when you add his numbers to his major league totals, he will now become an over 300 lifetime hitter. You know, he was already like 292. But, you know, it's just something special about 300. 292, just eight-tenths of a point away from 300. Mm -hmm. But when you get to that 300 threshold, they look at you entirely different. Oh yeah, and, and yeah. so you know his numbers will improve. Manny Minoso's numbers will improve. Henry Aaron, unfortunately, who had about eight, ten home runs when he played for the Indianapolis Clowns, won't get those. But you know, if he had gotten those, and he was there in 1952, if he'd gotten those, that would have pushed his home run total up. He hit 467 that season that he was in the Negro League. I'm gonna say that again. He hit 467. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah, a few more miles. <laughs> a few more miles. That's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy he's to think. Eighteen years old now. He's eighteen years old, Stephen, playing with grown men. Mm -hmm. Playing with grown men. Yeah. Now that 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 was this kid was destined for greatness. A hundred percent. Yeah, for sure. And and I was thinking about it. If you know, hypothetically. If if Gibson's numbers did have like 800 homers or something, it would, it would be such an unbelievable. Because if I were to go back, uh, if you and I were to go back in you know 1920, and tell someone, hey, in a hundred years, three the top three home run hitters in the game will all be African American. Yeah, that would be amazing. Nobody would believe you. Mm -hmm. Nobody would believe you. And, and that's what you you were right on the money. And that's why it's still so hard for people to believe what these guys in the Negro Leagues accomplished. Because again, if it didn't happen in the major leagues, people think it didn't happen. And, and so, yeah, you're right. But this is kind of a great window to look at it at what happened when the door is open. So if this happened when the door is open, don't you think that it might've been possible that there were some other guys in this league 
that were just as good or even more frightening, better than a Henry Aaron and a Willie Mays, you know, and, and an Ernie Banks and a Roy Campanella. It, 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 and so it is highly likely and highly possible, you know, uh, because there was talent galore in these leagues. And when I hear someone who I had the utmost respect for, my dear friend, the late great Monty Irvin, when he says, I played with Willie Mays, and he did, they were teammates with the New York Giants. He mentored Willie Mays, and I played against Henry M. And neither of them are Josh Gibson. It just makes you wonder how good was Josh Gibson? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's part of the magic. That's part, that's of, the part magic. of the magic. Yeah. But again, you know, you think, and I talk about this all the time. Our friend Ichiro Suzuki is over in Japan. He puts up 3,000 hits, announces that he's going to come over here to play in the major leagues. What's the first word that came out of people's mouth? Well, you did that in your league, but you won't be able to do this in this league. Mm -hmm. And then what does he do? He put up 3,000 more hits, you know, and, and that was the fact that we just don't, I think, accept that there's great baseball being played around the globe. And in this country, there was great baseball being played in two separate leagues, the major leagues and the Negro leagues, but they were both professional. A hundred percent. Mr. Kendrick, I really appreciate the time. This was a lot of fun. Uh, I'm sure the listeners and the viewers learned a lot. Um, congratulations again on the, the fun by Barstool. Um, turn the, turn the ringer up on your phone, <laughs> but, uh, that's pretty awesome, and I appreciate the time. Yeah, no, man, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You guys could follow uh, Mr. Bob Kendrick on Twitter. He's very active on twi uh, Twitter at NLBPrez, P-R-E-Z. Uh, tweets a lot of great stuff um, if you want to keep up with some of the happenings uh, of the Negro League Museum. And you guys could also go on their website at, or, uh, sorry, NLB. Dot com. So I checked it out. By the way, I looked at the shop. It's, I mean, some of the stuff on there is really cool. So um, maybe I'll have to check it out even more. So, <laughs> so it, was, it was pretty awesome. So I appreciate you joining me. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for watching and have an incredible day.